with Bigfoot, there's enough evidence, you know, with fecal material, with footprints, with eyewitness accounts, with traditions, that if it was actually a, a case of murder, you could have sent somebody to the electric chair several times over. Ladies and gentlemen, we I wonder if we'll, we're going to learn more about the Thunderbirds by having some new fossil discoveries that will really kind of shake up uh, science in general. The Tazoverm are these four foot long, almost like a giant beaded lizard that are often reported in the Alps. The other thing that a lot of people don't know is that there's actually enough water in Loch Ness to bury everyone on Earth under six feet of water. Oh, wow. This is the kind of information you get, folks, from Lauren Coleman, not just on the show, but when you go to the museum, he'll tell you these stories that even I've never heard of amazing stuff. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with Another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big thanks to our buddy Pete Diggins for providing the theme music to this installment of the program. Check out his website, rophonic.com, and that's spelled A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C dot com. One minor in-house note here this week on the program. We were scheduled to have Cullen O'Reilly on the program this week. But I actually shifted things around at the last minute, called an audible, and decided to run this fantastic interview with Lauren Coleman. Wanted to time it for the big relocation of Lauren's International Cryptozoology Museum. But wouldn't you know, this being BOA Audio, of course, I had the episode all lined up where it was really very close to having it to you. And we got nailed with this winter storm, knocked the power out at BOA HQ. And the episode was sort of sitting there half done while I waited for things to resume. Anyway, that's sort of the catchy up on where we're at here as we go into this installment of the program. As noted, our guest is the iconic Lauren Coleman. And we have finally got him back on the program after a nearly five-year absence to talk about pure cryptozoology. Of course, we've had him on for the baseball special we only had him on to talk crypto stuff way back in Season 1. So this is a big, big, big return to the program by Lauren Coleman. Very excited to have this episode for you folks. I have been waiting to talk to Lauren about pure cryptozoology for so long. So when I finally got the chance to sit down and talk to him, we just covered a myriad of areas. Really, this is an in-depth and richly arrayed conversation covering cryptozoology, not just from the land, but also the sea and air. Over the course of the next 90 minutes or so, you're going to hear us talk about Lauren's amazing International Cryptozoology Museum, covering it from a whole bunch of different angles. Then, of course, since I am a massive Bigfoot aficionado, we're going to have a lengthy discussion on my own personal white whale. And we're going to get into the state of Bigfoot research. Where do we stand on proving the existence of this mysterious beast. 
And as noted, land, sea, air, we're going to cover a veritable menagerie of cryptids, including the Orang, Pendek, Yeti, the Loch Ness Monster, Champ, the Abominable Snowman, Ogo Pogo, the Montauk Monster, Alien Big Cats, Chupacabras, Thunderbirds, and even the Tazoverm. That is just a crypto zoo of creatures here, my friends. And we're going to talk about all of them on the program. It is a conversation that spans the pantheon of cryptozoology's most famous and infamous creatures, as well as providing a look at the current state of the science with the legendary Lauren Coleman. For those folks out there who are unfamiliar with Lauren Coleman, I feel bad for you because he is one of the all-time greats in the world of not just cryptozoology, but esoterica as a whole, and I'm going to try and provide you with just a bit of background on him. Lauren Coleman is one of the world's leading cryptozoologists, some say the leading. Certainly he is acknowledged as the current living American researcher and writer who has most popularized cryptozoology in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Starting his field work and investigations in 1960, after traveling and trekking extensively in pursuit of cryptozoological mysteries, Coleman began writing to share his experiences soon after his first expeditions. His first cryptozoology magazine article was published in 1969, when he was 21 years old. His first book was published in 1975. Today, Coleman has written more than 6,000 columns and articles, as well as over 35 books. He's appeared frequently on radio and television programs and has lectured throughout North America, as well as in London and at Loch Ness. Two of his newest books for 2011 are Monsters of New Jersey with Bruce Hallenbeck and True Giants with Mark Hall. Lauren established his International Cryptozoology Museum in 2003 in his home, and he extended beyond merely receiving media and research guests by appointment when the museum went public in 2009. After two years of massive media coverage, the museum relocated to an all-new location, befitting its growing popularity. Lauren Coleman's websites are www.cryptomundo.com, that's spelled C-R-Y-P-T-O-M-U-N-D-O.com. And the International Cryptozoology Museum's website is www.cryptozoologymuseum.com. Pretty simple, all one word, cryptozoologymuseum.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 17, 2011. Lauren Coleman joins us for an in-depth cryptozoology conversation on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. I am just supremely excited about this edition of the program. It's one we've been trying to actually put together for quite a while. My guest... I could just talk all day with hyperbole. I mean, you know, in the world of the paranormal, he's an icon, okay? He is the face and voice of cryptozoology, not just to America, but really the world. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the all-time greats, and he's also one of my good friends, something that I never would have even thought could happen 10 years ago when I picked up his book, Bigfoot, The True Story of Apes in America. And since that time, you know, I've had the chance to hang out with him. I've had the chance to talk to him. He's been on the show numerous times, but only once for a full-length cryptozoology discussion. 
and that was back in February of 2006. So it's been way too long since we had this conversation again. Of course, I am talking about the iconic Lauren Coleman. He's the man behind the International Cryptozoology Museum. Big news about that we're going to be getting into right away. And, of course, the massively popular blog, Cryptomundo.com. And he's the author of how many books is it at this point, Lauren? What's the count now? Uh, about 35. About 35 books. So just an unbelievable career in this field. And as I said, it's thrilling for me to have him back on the show for this conversation. Lauren, welcome back to BOA Audio. It's been too long. Tim, it's great talking to you. It does seem amazing to me that it's not been since 2006 that we've in-depth talked about cryptozoology. Well, you know, one thing is, is great about our friendship it has even outlasted the MASH monster marathons, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We outlasted uh, little get-togethers that used to happen in Massachusetts. And uh, some friendships really do go beyond uh, little incidental meetings. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We promise, trust me, Lauren and I do not want to talk at all about the Red Sox here tonight, folks. So so there will be no Red Sox discussion. But, uh, you know, the cool thing about our friendship, too, is just that, you know, I I always sort of measure these friendships in in the paranormal by the ratio of how much you talk about the paranormal to what you don't talk about, you know, the normal stuff. And it seems our conversations always revolve around sports at this point. So it's, uh, it's, it's gone on that long. Well, let's talk about, of course, uh, the big thing, the International Cryptozoology Museum. Coming up, of course, on the two-year anniversary, but you've got this big move going on, the grand reopening on October 30th, 2011. Talk about, you know, what's going on with the museum. Well, you know what occurred, of course, the museum itself was created in 2003 with two primary missions. One, to really preserve and respect the history of cryptozoology. I was hearing about so many collections that were being ditched into dumpsters and being trashed and being forgotten. And then also, I, of course, had a a massive collection that a lot of documentary film companies, a lot of reality TV and researchers wanted to see. So I organized it into a museum in 2003 in Portland, Maine, in four and a half rooms in my home. And I would have different people in. And then, of course, as anything happens uh, with the new age of the Internet, People started asking me if they could come visit, and it really got to be overwhelming. I had a couple teenage boys that were growing into young men, and, you know, even before they went to college, it was uh, kind of a hassle to try to figure out where is the living space that they can be secure in, and then where are all these uh, public people that wanted to come in and look at the museum. So finally, I I started putting out the feelers in 2009, I was at a conference up in Maine, and uh, Michelle Soliner, who eventually uh, created the Green Hand Books, she said, I'm moving into a a place on Congress Street in downtown Portland. There's a room at the back of it. Would you like to have your museum there? And I jumped at the chance and put uh, all of my major artifacts, evidence, different things, uh, actually turned out to be at, uh, over 2,000 items into 500 square feet. And it was overwhelming for some people, but for most people, they really enjoyed it. They came through. But then um, I signed a three-year lease, and I thought, oh, you know, uh, at the end of this three years, I'll definitely want to move. Well, it turned out at the end of two years, I just needed to move. It was just too small. 
Uh, we were too successful. Uh, we were getting people from New Zealand, from Australia, from England, Germany. Um, I, I counted in the last two weeks. We were the destination site for seven different honeymoon couples. Oh, my God. There was uh, some people came in a week ago. They had just got married in Madrid, Spain, and they decided to come over to New England. And the very first place they wanted to come was the International Cryptozoology Museum. <laughs> as, wow. as it turns out, they'd heard me on a podcast over in uh, Spain. I've been on, uh, you know, the museum and myself have been on um, U.S. Navy television, a podcast and television show in Italy, one in Germany, one in Spain. And so our our international acclaim, so to speak, is is getting to be so much that people are getting married and they're coming here for their honeymoons. And it just, we needed to move. We needed to move. And so we've moved out, of, we're moving out of this space that's, you know, under 500 feet, square feet. And we're moving into a space that is about four times, five times as big as, as where we're at. We also, in the last um, last two months, have filed for and been granted nonprofit corporation status in the state of Maine, and we're doing all of the continued filing to get the uh, the IRS five hundred one c three. So it's just the the amazing thing is that the museum is just becoming more and more well known, more and more successful. I mean, we're on. Uh, I heard about from all of these people from all over the world that were mentioned in uh, Lonely Planet. We're on the Huffington Post top seven weird places in the United States to go see. We were in uh, Reader's Digest in the main issue in Yankee Magazine, quirky spot of New England. So it's just, uh, I mean, I didn't even really try for any of this, and I just wanted to say here's the collection. It's organized, uh, lots of signs, lots of tours, lots of, uh, you know, real evidence of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Orange, Pindek, Yowie. A Tasmanian tiger, real hair samples, real foot casts, all of those things, and and before I know it, uh, you know, just it's it's got all of this uh, promotional publicity, insights, write-ups, reviews, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. The media coverage of this has been massive, and oh, and, yeah, it, yeah. and just you know, as a friend and as a fan of of cryptozoology, it's like so gratifying to see, you know, and it's it's for the most part positive. Of course, you get some of the jokey aspect. You're always going to get that with paranormal coverage, but just to get the word out like this in so many outlets is amazing. Right. And um, there, it's even been uh, for the skeptics. A lot of skeptics have been surprised about how skeptical I am, or a lot of uh, popular cultural anthropologists to come through here and, and really began to uh, really understand that we don't have toys here. We have artifacts that might have a cultural background to them. Uh, and, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are actually the kappas from Japanese folklore. And so a lot of people are understanding that. Or like the what's behind the jackalope or the fur-bearing trout or the Fiji mermaid, which are, are rogue taxidermy items of cryptozoology. So it's it's entertaining, it's educational, and it's very scientific as a, a baseline. And, of course, um, uh, here to take a metaphor from baseball, um, if we build it, they will come, and it really did happen. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah, that is the amazing part, too. And it's like it's a you have a really unique 
sort of uh, like research opportunity, almost in a sociological level too, because because you know the the people come to you to see this stuff, so you get a pretty good idea, you know, of the cross section of people that are interested in this, and I'm sure it ranges from you know lay people who are curious all the way up to ardent cryptozoologists and and then the skeptics. I mean, what's it been like just to sort of see this wave of people come in? Well, it's just amazing. I I ask every person that comes through some preliminary demographic questions because I individualize the orientation for every person. So in those three to five questions that I ask people, I can find out if they're a a lifelong cryptozoologist or if they're somebody off of a cruise ship and they saw us on a map and they, they were, you know, they were tired of the art museums or the lobster shack. So they wanted to go to someplace unique that's only in Portland and, and really only, only here as the only international cryptozoology museum in the world. So it's been quite enlightening to see, you know, some people come in and they've read my books, they know my name, and they, I'm not exaggerating, they literally start crying because they're meeting me. I mean, I, I, as you well know, and I just think I'm a, a common, ordinary person that just happened to write the books and, and pull together thoughts to share on cryptozoology. And, and of course, now I'm, I'm seen as, as I jokingly say to people, I'm often called the world's leading living cryptozoologist. But, <laughs> but for me, the most important phrase is that I'm living. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I, you know, everybody can be the greatest. I just wanted to make sure I, sh- I shared all of this before I kicked the bucket. So here it is. Um, and I still go out. You know, I just uh, returned from a 3,000-mile road trip to Illinois in which I stopped in Indiana, investigated the giant turtle reports. I stopped in New York and investigated some old Black Panther reports at the Van Eaton Swamp. Uh, you know, and I, in Pennsylvania, I went and looked at the territory in Fayette County where there's Bigfoot reports. So I'm still out there in the field just because I have a museum. I haven't stopped uh, being field research worthy as well as, a, you know, a documentary film programs called me up and they say, can we fly you to Point Pleasant, West Virginia? Uh, as Discovery Channel's William Shatner's Weird or What did uh, last spring. So I'm still doing all of that. I'm still, um, you know, being in the museum sometimes and then also writing books. So it's, it's, uh, I've never been so active in my life actually. So it's, it's great. It's great to be alive. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And, and, you know, I've, I've remarked to people too when I'm talking about the museum. What, one of the greatest, things in the museum is you because like you said you tailor this you even tailor the the presentation to what the people are looking for i mean this is like you're not just going to the international cryptozoology museum you're getting the you know the full monty here from from the guy who really is as i said the face and voice of cryptozoology it's worth the trip alone you know so it's i enjoyed it thoroughly i can't wait to see the new space i'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with that yeah, I, I surprise a lot of people. You know, they tell me they're from uh, Oakland County, Michigan, and I just have this 
little filing system in my head, and I say, oh, yeah, the site of uh, 1969 Black Panther reports. And they just look at me like, you know, I either have three eyes or something. But some once in a blue moon, they say, oh, yeah, you know, my mother actually saw that, and we never uh, told anybody. You know, we read about it in the paper, but we saw it too. And it just it's, it's amazing how, like the other day, I was telling the story of Ruth Harkness and the discovery of the giant panda, and the woman's standing there, and she all of a sudden says, wow, that's amazing. I never thought that I'd come here and you would have talked about Ruth Harkness because my grandmother was the woman that got had all of Ruth Harkness's letters, and the lady in the panda, she was in the movie, she was in the book, and I'm the granddaughter of the woman that knew Ruth Harkness. So it's like these incredible connections that happen all the time. People coming here and then finding out they are part of the exhibits. And the other part of it that's really fantastic, uh, sort of going along with the research opportunity aspect of it, too, is like up until now, we really didn't have this sort of clearinghouse for, for stuff. Like if this lady had material that you want, like where would you give that stuff to? Now it can be sent to uh to Lawrence Museum, so it can be preserved, like you said, so people's collections and stuff don't go tossed in the trash or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and that, uh, and one of uh, one of the things that I I've tried to uh, really instill in people is I don't care if they give it to this museum, but I want them to really understand the archives and cryptozoology should be given to uh, their alumni, to their local library, their foundation, whatever. We, of course, would like to have it for the museum to share it with other people. And so, for instance, uh, an artist in North Carolina just recently had a show here in Portland, and he just donated uh, a dozen paintings that are unique to cryptozoology to the new museum. Uh, a man who, um, a researcher who made a, um, a, a lifelong obsession to collect every jackalope postcard and other kind of fake and folkloric cards uh, with jackalopes and fur-bearing trout. And he's dying of cancer in Germany, and he just donated his... Uh, is three notebooks of all of those postcards to our museum so we can exhibit them. So it's it's quite exciting that people are really uh, understanding that there's a history here. Uh, and for instance, uh, before he died, uh, one of the researchers that was connected to this Tom Flick expeditions, he donated the the hair samples, the fecal material, oh, wow. the, the skin samples to our museum. And, and in fact, you know, it kind of comes around that that happened a few years ago, and uh, on October 25th, for instance, uh, Travel Channel is doing a special on the Tom Slick uh, fecal material samples that are in this museum on their program, Mysteries at the Museum. And, you know, those shows that go on those documentary channels, they're just repeated forever. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're really putting into the documentary history all of this material that kind of was always forgotten. It's just amazing. It's absolutely, it's absolutely amazing when you step back and just see the totality of what's gone on here with this museum. It's just, it's just fantastic. I'm, I'm just uh, so happy for you that it, that it's turned out to be such a success. Just, just thrilled. Thank you. Now it's been five years, as I said, since we've even more five and a half now uh, since we had the last uh, full-length crypto conversation here on the show. Let's sort of dive a little bit in here now to to the world of cryptozoology and. 
you know, I, I consider Bigfoot sort of like my white whale, even though I have an interest in UFOs. I just passionately have an interest in Bigfoot and, and sort of getting to the bottom of this mystery. And we've seen a real stunning sort of raising of public awareness of Bigfoot uh, since we talked even, uh, not just with like Monster Quest, but even with these sort of like silly messing with Sasquatch commercials and stuff. It's like Bigfoot is hot, really hot. But at the same time, you know, I'm wondering where we are on a practical level on our quest to actually solve the Bigfoot puzzle. So, I mean, so let's let's talk a little bit. There's two things going on in that question, but I think you can kind of understand where I'm going. You know, where are we really with getting to the bottom of this as, as it parallels this amazing resurgence in interest? Well, I, I think on one level, we've really come to grips with the fact that uh, long-term, the major quest for Bigfoot is still ongoing. And part of the problem, of course, is funding. Uh, during the Victorian era, the one of the reasons we were able to pursue things like the giant panda, the mountain gorilla, and some of these larger unknown animals in Africa and Asia was that you had museums and you had zoological parks that were interested in proving if these creatures actually existed, adding them, adding them to their collections and all of that. So you would have people in the field for six months at a time. Uh, now we're in the age of, you know, we used to say MTV, but it's really the Internet, it's Twitter, it's, you know, instant thoughts, instant email, instant messaging, and TV programs that are interested in funding some searches for Bigfoot but how do they do it? They do it by sending someone into the field for three days. Yeah. So the frustrating part is there's never been a higher interest in Bigfoot, but there's never been lower uh, actual funding for the searches. Um, you also have a lot of possible secret projects going on. A lot of people are talking about the Erickson Project or... Uh, other projects that uh, are funding Jeff Meldrum and, and things like that. But long term, we're, we're going to have to be patient because if there's a real project going on where they're testing DNA and they're testing hair samples, they're not going to rush to have a news conference like we saw with the Georgia hoax mm -hmm. in 2008. Those people were promoters. They were trying to make money. They did actually make $50,000 off of a construction owner in Indiana. He never got his money back. Um, and they were just interested in, in spending the money on fast cars and fast women. So we never saw it, uh, it recycled back into Bigfoot research. Whereas Meldrum and some other people were actually quietly uh, getting grants and doing some hard work but we'll have to wait until their peer-reviewed papers are, are published and we'll know if there's anything real there. In the meantime, I don't see any long-term uh, really placing uh, – see, I think that the, the way that Bigfoot will eventually be proven is by having a woman or several women placed in the field for six months at a time. Uh, the pheromones, the pheromones that human males send off really do send the great apes going in the other direction. So the experience of Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and all of the female researchers that really have worked with great apes needs to be replicated by uh, female humans looking for Bigfoot. 
Wow. So this is fascinating. Uh, this is a, a completely different take than I would have expected uh, to hear, but it, obviously very logical and well thought out. So, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And, and there was actually a woman a couple years ago. Um, I supported her getting grants. She was an artist in California, and she wanted to do a uh, sort of a performance art situation that she called Finding Bigfoot. She was going to go into the woods for six weeks and through a satellite uplink, constantly had a video camera on and video uh, texting to uh, her supporters and to her professors and different things to try to be in touch with um, wildlife. And maybe just by being in one place, Bigfoot would come to her. So I got her sponsorships. I got her equipment. I did all of those kinds of things. And then she got out in the field, and I could see from the uplink uh, some very disappointing uh, a disappointing situation uh, occurred. Finally, she got back from her six weeks out in the woods, not having any close-up experiences with Bigfoot. And I asked her uh, what I eventually had to ask her, which was, why did she bring a dog along? <laughs> and she said she brought a dog along because she was afraid as a single female out in the woods. Unfortunately, all of us know that the one animal that uh, you never take uh, with you if you're trying to find Bigfoot, um, you know, in a camping situation or a, uh, you know, a stakeout situation is a dog because Bigfoot have a natural animosity against the canids. Uh, they've been known to kill them, to rip them from limb to limb, to really get in fights with them. It may be the old wolf versus Bigfoot kind of syndrome, but um, I, I found that unfortunate. And so I told her, I said, I wish you would have let me know that. I would have suggested get to go out in the field with two women or three women, yeah. but ne never to take a dog. It's almost, it's almost as illogical as when you hear about uh, weekend Joe's, you know, six-pack Joe's going out to hunt, find Bigfoot and they're smoking cigarettes because the smoking of the cigarette sends the Bigfoot going the other direction too. So, um, you know, there's there's lots of elementary things that I think will lead to the finding of Bigfoot. Of course, the other um, kind of Harry and the Henderson syndrome is that we may discover Bigfoot when a lumber truck hits one. Yeah. So that is the other possibility. But I, I do think that it's going to be a woman that eventually ha makes contact. Uh, I am a little uh, upset, however, by what I see, you know, since you're a student of ufology, mm -hmm. you know that one of the undermining elements of ufology as sort of scientific ufology was the whole phase of um UFO contactees. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the Bigfoot history of recent years has gone into what we call Bigfoot contactees. I've noticed a little bit of that. Yeah, I've noticed a little bit of that. People who say that they're having contact with Bigfoot. I mean, there's, there's no other way to couch the term, right? I mean, so, yeah, saying... Oh, oh yeah. That yeah there's a very big story that was uh, in, um, in all of the newspapers last week, uh, you know, during... Uh, during October, and uh, it was a situation where a woman, and I'll just use her first name, Robin, said that she, and she actually got funding to go over to Russia to a conference that was over in Russia to talk to the people there. She says she's been in contact with a family of 10 Bigfoot for two years in Michigan, 
and that they love her um, blueberry bagels. <laughs> and she says she knows that that's their favorite food. So whenever she isn't able to bake them, she goes around to other stores in the area of Michigan where she lives and tells everybody that she's getting the bagels for wildlife. And, uh, you know, but Jeff Melder, myself, and others have really questioned this whole situation with her. If you're in contact with Bigfoot for two years or the woman in Tennessee who said she was in contact with the family of Bigfoot for 50 years, Where's the proof? Right. Where's the photographs? Where's the fecal material? Jeff Meldrum, uh, the reporter, myself, you know, the least you can get in a very unintrusive way is to pick up fecal material. I mean, if you're saying you don't want to take their picture because you feel like you're intruding on them or you can't get hair samples and different things like that, there's absolutely nothing. You know, if it's a real biological being, it it has to do uh, a bit of defecation in the woods. So you pick up the fecal material and you prove to everybody that you have DNA of Bigfoot. Right. Um, and so it's been disappointing over and over again. We're hearing these big contactee stories. And unfortunately, there's certain people in Russia and in the United States that feel that these Bigfoot are in telepathic communication with humans. Yeah, then it gets into real strange stuff, right? That the woman in Tennessee was saying that they speak in a human-like lingo that it can be interpreted as a form of Cherokee. Uh, so it just gets, it gets, I mean, literally more and more crazy and becomes like the UFO contactees in which you begin to wonder if they're going to say that they came from the planet Venus, you know, the, as the next step. Right, right. Now, you talked about sort of what you called, uh, what you termed, I guess you could say, uh, like secret studies uh, that, that might be going on. But are these the sort of situations where, you know, we may get half the foot through the door in a sense, where we're going to get some peer-reviewed paper and admirably done, you know, obviously, and that, that will sort of say, yes, there's a creature that exists, you know, that we've cross-sectioned with all this DNA from all these things, but we don't have the body or anything like that. Almost like Bigfoot's real, but we don't. We can't go all the way with it yet. Is that kind of what you think may happen with these sort of peer-reviewed papers that are being written? Well, some of us are some somewhat suspicious of some of the things we're hearing because they're saying, well, it seems like the DNA is showing this is a human-like creature. Well, you know, the contamination of DNA with human skin cells is quite frequent. So we have to be very skeptical of these studies in which they're saying they're writing peer-reviewed journal articles, and yet they're not going to show us all the information. They need to be challenged by cryptozoologists from inside the field just as much by the skeptics and debunkers from outside the field. We really have to have a high standard. We, The eventual proof of Bigfoot has to be a body, dead or alive. You don't really have uh, any leeway anymore because with the name Bigfoot, which has become such a silly name, that anthropologists are really holding Bigfoot studies to a higher standard. We have the the discovery of new species in Africa of monkeys, for instance, purely based upon videotape. Some other places, of course, you have uh, the debate ongoing about does the ivory-billed woodpecker exist and all they have is a video and some sound recordings. But with Bigfoot, there's enough evidence, you know, with fecal material, with 
footprints, with eyewitness accounts, with traditions, that if it was actually a, a case of murder, you could have sent somebody to the electric chair several times over. But it's not enough proof for scientists, for zoologists, for anthropologists to say Bigfoot exists. So since we're in that situation, we have to really uh, go with the rules that have been set up and uh, work a little harder to come up with a body or a body part or a live capture. I'm I'm very much a no-kill, new-age anthropologist in terms of it's not really necessary to to do the James Audubon thing and completely kill out the species to prove they exist. Right, right. I, I always feel, too, kind of like that once we get the one Bigfoot, all of a sudden it's somehow going to become easier that, that we'll see. If a Bigfoot gets hit by a truck, all of a sudden, next thing you know, it'll be somehow more easy to not just capture or just prove it in a way. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel oh, like yeah, once I one domino that... falls, all of a sudden we're going to get a lot more information. Yeah, I think the floodgates will open and a lot of the rejection of past evidence will we'll have a lot of people bringing out uh, shelves and drawers full of evidence that they really didn't want to talk about. And then you'll see how it all all of these pieces will fit together. I think even if, uh, if we have a discovery of the Orangi Pindic, which is a little bipedal mm -hmm. ape over in Sumatra, if that happens in the next 25 years, as I've uh, written about, I think it's the best bet to be discovered. In many ways, I think that's going to really change a lot of perception. And you've already really seen it a little bit when the, uh, the Homo forensius, the hobbits, were discovered in 2003. Right, right. You think it's going to take 25 years for the Orang Pendek? Because we've had Adam Davies on the show three times now, and I'm fascinated by his work. Because uh, he seems like he's getting closer and closer. Like I'd put it almost at five years, but maybe I'm being too too optimistic. Well, I think I think Adam, who's been there, who's been in the middle of it, has a little bit of the um, participant observer uh, addiction. I mean, I I really like Adam. I'm also for for his work, and I really support it. And and uh, you know, I, the museum has a first generation cast of the Range Pindek. Uh, footprint from his 2001 expedition. So I'm a very pro-Adam Davies guy, kind of guy. I wrote an introduction to his book. But uh, I think, you know, to be a conservative cryptozoologist in, say, 25 years uh, versus sort of almost too hopeful to say it's going to be in five years. Yeah, that was I mean, my not, prediction, not, not, yeah, not yeah, Adam. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I think that, uh, I mean, it was in 1985 that I uh, helped write uh, the... Uh, the letter to the Indonesian government for Deborah Marta, who's been over there for since 85. She needed someone who, uh, you know, was at a university like I was at the time to support her visa so she could get in there. And she said, you know, I've been there since 85. I've seen, uh, I've seen Arange Pindek three times and I've seen the Sumatran rhino two times. We know the Sumatran rhino exists. And I know that the Orange Pindic exists, but we don't have final proof yet. And so even though those researchers have been there and Adam and Debbie and others have found footprints and hair samples and, and all of that, it's still, it's still just barely on the edge of the quest. So I have to be, it's sort of like building the pyramid. It takes a long, long time yeah. and we really have to have patience. 
All right. I'll try to be more patient. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> I, I, I'm hopeful, too. I would certainly like to see a big discovery uh, before I turn 100. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to go down a really weird road, I, I stumbled across this uh, somewhere. I forget where now, but I, I heard somewhere that after Mount St. Helens erupted that the government, like, secretly came in and took away a bunch of Bigfoot bodies. Uh, you must have heard this rumor before. Is there, obviously, if there was any truth to it, we'd <laughs> this, this conversation would be completely different. But uh, what's, what's, that whole, what's that whole story about? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was an early urban legend that, uh, that after the uh, Mount St. Helens wiped out the forest, that people said they saw helicopters coming in and and that there was, uh, you know, baskets at the bottom of the helicopters and, and that there was, that was the government secretly taking, uh, taking bodies of Bigfoot back to the Smithsonian warehouse and, you know, kind of Indiana Jones uh, stuff was going on, they said. But you hear this over and over again. I mean, I hear uh, the other parts of it is, well, now since we have all this satellite technology, the government has, you know, rooms full of uh, videos and digital recordings of Bigfoot crossing the border between uh, Canada and the United States. And why doesn't the government release that? We've got high high-definition satellites that are yeah. picking up that. And I, I've talked to quite a few government people. They come through the museum. I've, I've talked to them, you know, in other ways. And and one of the, the kind of underlying things that you see over and over again about the government is that it's not so much that they're engaged in any kind of cover-up. They're like most bureaucratic systems. They're so overwhelmed with paperwork and data that they don't even have time to look for Bigfoot. I was told by one person that, you know, that they're, um, they're focusing on a certain human signature for those border crossings of the thermal imaging that is occurring across the, yeah. the borders. They said, if we see a moose or we see a Bigfoot and it doesn't fit with our description of what we think an Al Qaeda would look like, that just goes in, it's erased. It's, you know, we don't have enough time to look at every possible moose that comes across the border. Uh, I mean, maybe that's how Al-Qaeda is getting into the country. They're dressing up as moose. But <laughs> but, but I, th I think, you know, what I'm getting from all of this is that it's just, it's kind of foolish, actually, to think the government is really interested in Bigfoot. They've got their hands full with uh, cigarette tax and liquor and, Al-Qaeda and terrorists and all kinds of other things. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Uh, and I think that the eventual, what I heard about the Mount St. Helens story is something similar. The government was in there looking for bodies. They were looking for their researchers. They were looking for their geological survey individuals. And they were fl flying helicopters over that whole area looking for human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they weren't looking for Bigfoot. Most oh. of the animals actually turned to cinders. Yeah, that's, could, that's what I was figuring. Either they ran away in time, or they, or they, you wouldn't right. even be able to see the body. It would be just right. ash and stuff. So exactly, it's, it's probably like uh, not a good place to look. Um, now, I, what I find interesting too, uh, we're sort of going into the now, back to the modern era, what's going on with Bigfoot research now is that you know I spent a lot of time obviously on Cryptomundo, reading the articles and stuff like that. It seems like like there's always some new video or something like that, but I haven't seen anything really compelling anymore because it seems like just an oversaturation of these hokey movies 
or or bad films and blurry stuff. I mean, have you noticed this that, that that with the with the rise of the camera phone and everything, it seems like there's some controversial or or talked about little snippet of film every few months or something like that. Well, I think the uh, the evolutionary decline of of digital photography, as evidenced by YouTube, is is just appalling. I mean, every other day there's a new Bigfoot video posted on YouTube, um, and it's it's they're just terrible. They're you know they're people in suits, they're people looking at a shadow in a on a tree and saying it's a Bigfoot. Uh, several years ago, I think it was in 2006, I did a short history of blob squash, and that's a term that actually was coined to talk about all of these images, all of these pictures that really all they are is blobs, either frozen images or moving pictures of images that really turn out to be nothing. They turn out to be shadows, rocks, uh, wind, and then the occasional hoaxes. Obviously, the gold standard of uh, cryptozoological films, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film, has stood the test of time. And, and a lot of people forget about... Uh, some of the other films, like the Redwood film, the Memorial Day film, and actually one of the two individuals, uh, Owen Platt, just recently died in a car accident. He was behind that film, um, the Memorial Day film. So you've got all of those other kinds of films that somewhat come up to the standard of the, the Bob Gimlin, uh, Roger Patterson film, but... Uh, Actually, the cell phones, the digital cameras, the, all of those have made it not better but worse because yeah. the Patterson film was on film. It was actually on film, and with film we've been able to blow it up and enhance it and stabilize it. With all of these digital, you can only do so much and, and blow something up so big, and then it it, it includes a lot of um, pixel contamination that really doesn't help us. It really hinders the analysis of these creatures on film. Now, I'm sure you've heard about, obviously, all the different controversies surrounding the Patterson-Gimlin film. And since you mentioned it, I want to ask you just sort of, because we had Gian Kassar on, and he had a fairly controversial uh, Bigfoot book that came out towards the end of last year. And he addresses a lot of these issues with the Patterson-Gimlin film, sort of along the lines of, of the behavior of Patterson and Gimlin after they had made the movie and how they had, I don't remember all the details off the top of my head, but how they had mailed the movie and then drove to where they had mailed it, and a lot of sort of weird things about their behavior over the course of the filming of the of the of the Bigfoot film that makes it very suspicious. What are your thoughts, I guess, on just that human element behind the film and how it makes it, in some people's eyes, uh, you know, questionable? I think that uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. I think that whenever you, you look back historically on anything and you try to recreate it from memories over holidays when people were mailing things, when p people were had a rental camera that they turned in late and then, um, you know, the, the camera rental place sent a, um, a warrant for their arrest and how that was overblown into someone had stolen the camera, and all of these kinds of things can all be taken out of context and really overblown. I don't 
think that what if you look at it on an individual basis, each of these single behaviors were really nothing any more than what any of us would do if we didn't think this was going to be some kind of historical thing. You know, you 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 put in, you take pictures, you put them, well, at least people used to, the, you put them in to develop, you forget about picking them up, you rent a camera, you maybe turn it in late, you pay your library fines or you pay your fine, and, and you don't think about that somebody else quickly overreacted and said that you'd stole the camera. Yeah. So there's all of these little incidents that all put together. I mean, Roger Patterson was a very obsessed a uh, man who was a rodeo writer who wanted to make a documentary about Bigfoot. I mean, you look at why he was out there. He was out there to take a home movie about the territory where he thought there was going to be uh, Bigfoot living. He rounds a corner, and all of a sudden there's a Bigfoot there. He knew he had something, but uh, in many ways they didn't really know what they had. Uh, you know, you look at how big that thing is on the on the screen. It's quite little. I've interviewed Bob Gimlin. Um, we've got to remember that Roger Patterson's dead. He died in 1972, hardly ever making any money off this film. Uh, got cancer, uh, wanted to maybe do something with the film so his wife could have some kind of, you know, security after he died. He never did that. He He went around, he showed it at some kind of music halls and things like that, never made any money. Bob Gimlin went back to his uh, horse wrangling, never really thought about he was an important part of history. He didn't even start coming to Bigfoot conferences to talk to people about his experience until 2003. Oh, wow. And he didn't even do that until he got permission from his wife to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, Bob, Bob's a kind of a, a nice, homespun, very shy kind of guy, gets up very early at conferences, goes down to breakfast. I'm a very early riser, so in several of these conferences, Bob and I would sit there from six to eight talking nonstop about what happened. And you, you even hear and people come into the museum, for instance, mm -hmm. swearing that they've seen film of one of these two guys who took that film and did a deathbed confession that they said that they hoaxed the film. Now, I, I tell them over and over again, nothing like that ever happened. Uh, Roger Patterson died never confessing to, to being a hoax. I said there is one snippet of film in which Bob Gimlin is shown on camera, and he is asked, did you hoax the film? He takes a deep breath and bows his head because he was so pissed off that he had to answer that question again. Yeah. But the editor of that film clipped it so that it looks like he's saying yes. And so it's a manipulation. It's a visual manipulation of that film. And Bob Gimlin has told people over and over again that, you know, as soon as he did that, then he said, no, you know, no way did I, yeah. you know, all of that. But you have this happen over and over again that people think that that's a hoax film. Actually, in my 2003 Bigfoot book, I took the three different hoax claims from 1998 to 2002 and dissected them all and showed that, for instance, the famous uh, book by Greg Long, 
he, in that book, came up with two stories. One, that it was a costume from this uh, this guy in South Carolina who said he, he uh, gave a gorilla film, a gorilla suit to Patterson. And the other was that it was constructed from a red horse hide. Uh, and so a lot of us have often called uh, Greg Long's book the tale of two suits. <laughs> Uh, well, so you know, none of these stories really, uh, you know, they don't they don't hold any water. Yeah, yeah. Lemon, there was once a great American named George Henderson. He met a woodland ape or a Sasquatch, and despite its dangerous message of environmentalism, became his friend. But when the time came to do the hard thing and send it back into the forest where it belonged, and birds could perch on its shoulder because it was gentle. George Henderson summoned the strength, and by God, he did it. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Two eyes, two ears, a chin, a mouth, ten fingers, two nipples, a butt, two kneecaps, a penis. I have just described to you the Loch Ness Monster, and the reward for its capture all the riches in Scotland. So I have one question. Why are you here? Now, we, we sort of talked about the, the quest for Bigfoot and the search for Bigfoot. And I know you had the book uh, with Mark Hall that came out recently, True Giants. What we found is that there's a whole history and study of Bigfoot, a creature that's about uh, adult size, six and a half to eight feet tall. And that's a Paranthropus-type creature from Africa, Asia, that migrated across the Bering Strait, down through the Rockies and the Western Mountains, down through the Andes in South America. Very consistent reports of the Bigfoot Sasquatch, or as Ivan Sanderson called it, the Oma. Now, what we, what Mark Hall and I started picking up is that within the files of Bigfoot researchers, including John Green, Roger Patterson and some of these other guys from the 50s and 60s, they started noticing that there were reports of creatures in addition to Bigfoot. Okay, yeah. That that they were between 20 feet tall and 12 feet tall. And that, for instance, Roger Patterson in his book, he called this the Big Hairy Ape. Uh, there was a creature that was bigger than Bigfoot, but it was almost like the the information about this, while they took it seriously, it was way beyond something they wanted to study. Um, and same thing for for uh, John Green. He did uh, the Pit Lake reports of this creature that was almost 15 feet tall, where the uh, people that were making a dam actually compared the height of the creature based upon the trees that they stood next to. And they were looking at a, a, a giant, a true giant, as Mark and I call. Okay. So what we did is we took the history of these true giants from all around the world. We found that what we think is going on is that Gigantopithecus, which people like Grover Krantz have sort of tried to force the Gigantopithecus fossils uh makes them responsible for the Bigfoot reports that it doesn't work that way. Gigantopithecus was an ape-like creature in Asia that lived for three million years, and they were 10 feet tall, that they are the true giants, that they they really are bigger than the um, the Bigfoot reports, 
that they're uh, very, uh, you know, tall in stature uh, and actually may have a huge head with a sagittal crest and all of that, but they may have very long and thin limbs. Okay, so it's sort of like that we're dealing with two different creatures here. Yes, we're dealing with two the Bigfoot different. and the true giants. Right, and one of the reasons uh, uh, with my friend Patrick Weege, I wrote the book, uh, The Field Guide to Bigfoot in 1999, was that there's scientists like Jeff Meldrum, Grover Kratz, uh, that because they're, even though they act like that they're radical, radical Bigfoot researchers, they really are academics, and they have told me, and they've been angry with me because they said, the only way that we're going to make science pay attention to us is for all of us to do a united front that there's only one kind of Bigfoot, Yeti, Yaren yeah. uh, creature around the world, and we have to prove that one, and that you're really messing it up, Lauren, by saying there's these different kinds. I mean, I think there's a skunk ape in Florida that's different than Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest. I think the the true giants that actually may still exist in Asia are totally different than Bigfoot. I think there's a little uh, hobbit-like creatures in the South Sea, sea Islands that in Hawaii they're called Minahu, and in Flores Island they're called the Igogo. So I think there's different kinds of hairy hominid and, and anthropoids all around the world and that we do a disservice to the native peoples who are telling us about these by calling them all Bigfoot or even, you know, calling them all snowmen like they did up in uh, Siberia with this recent conference where everything's a snowman, everything's a Yeti, everything's a Bigfoot as if you can use those names interchangeably. I don't think that's true at all. Right, right. It's almost like, you know, a pit bull is different from a poodle, but they're both dogs. It's like right. people are making this mistake by sort of using Bigfoot and trying to just force it onto all the different Right, creatures. or I think it's even uh, more to the to the motto of uh, it's the difference between a domestic cat, a tiger, and a lion. Yeah. And they're really different species and, and genus. They're really very different animals we're talking about between Bigfoot, Yeti, and a uh, Yaren or, a, a, you know, the, the hobbits in, in the South Sea Islands. All right, yeah, because that, that's sort of – I alluded to the Gian Kassar book earlier. He sort of has a similar idea where he's saying, you know, multiple bipedal apes around the planet, different types of uh, creatures. So so you're you're sort of uh, in – I wouldn't say agreement, but uh, along the lines of, of that idea too. So that's cool. Right. Now, it seems like also – and, you know, maybe you can speak to this, I'm sure, but uh, I've noticed and maybe – I guess it is true because you talked about the contact E issue earlier, but it seems like there's more the, the paranormal element is creeping back into Bigfoot ness, if you will, and and people are sort of going back to the paranormal idea, maybe because they're looking for answers still, and then they think, well, we've we've exhausted the actual animal idea, so now we have to take a second look at the paranormal aspect. I mean, what are your? I know you've you've had thoughts on the paranormal element for years, but what's your take? You know, here in 2011 on that. Well, I think one of the fortunate or unfortunate things about having a 50-year overview of the field is that it does go in cycles. Uh, during the 1970s, uh, we had a time of high strangeness. Uh, people forget it, but uh, there were individuals, there were paperback books, there were presentations where people were s seriously saying that Bigfoot was stepping out of UFOs was surrounding themselves with electromagnetic fields, was doing telepathy with, uh, you know, human beings. 
Then it kind of disappeared in the 80s and 90s and the first part of the 21st century. And unfortunately now, I mean, Bigfoot and Yeti and all of these things are so popular uh, that we're actually uh, having the, an explosion of a lot more people trying to think about it. So, so you do have the person that comes along and says, well, we've got to think about the fourth dimension. Uh, I had a, a doctor come in here the other day, and he very seriously, very down-to-earth kind of guy said, well, I think that, uh, you know, not enough people are exploring that these Bigfoot creatures are coming from the fourth dimension. And he just was saying with a straight face, and his brother was here who had to be a lawyer, and he was rolling his eyes the whole time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just a, it's another consideration for people. Now, now myself, um, I very much agree with my mentor, Ivan Sanderson, that I have an extremely hard time explaining one unknown with another unknown. Okay, uh, yeah. I, I think that's the Fordian point of view. Charles Ford, actually, I came across a quote this morning from him that said, I will not insult you by, um, he, he said something like, uh, I've heard talk of the fourth dimension, but I will not insult you with writing about that. <laughs> so I think that we have to be very careful because it's so far out there as an explanation with absolutely no proof. It's a great fantasy and it's a great concept to intellectually play with, but it doesn't really help us on a biological, uh, zoological basis for trying to explore the fact that Bigfoot are leaving footprints, they're pooping in the woods, they're tearing down branches, they're leaving hair samples. This is all biologically based. They're eating, you know, berries and grasshoppers and little pica. What do we do about that? That doesn't, you know, they don't zoom over from the fourth dimension to do that, do they? Or, or do they? Or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, are they coming out of UFOs and uh, planting themselves here and then going back into the UFO and conversing with Elvis? I mean, you know, we have to at some point stop and say, uh, we do want to look at this scientifically, and we need to look at the, the as Ivan Sanderson called it, he wants to look at the tangible intangibles. Yeah. Well, it would be kind of depressing if uh, Bigfoot just came to our dimension just to go to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or to occasionally sit down in front of a TV and watch a baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> Now we we've talked here about to really butcher uh, sort of a pun here the big daddy of of cryptozoology that's the Bigfoot and and we we talked about this in our original conversation back in 2006 how I have sort of a latent fear in a way that if we capture the Bigfoot that it'll eventually hurt cryptozoology I'm sort of coming over that now and I'm feeling like given the popularity of the creature it actually would be would be this sort of rising tide lifts all ships situation where cryptozoology would be boosted into out of the paranormal, I think, completely if we find the Bigfoot. So but there's all these other creatures that sort of lurk beneath Well the, well let me let me uh, address sorry, something yeah. you've said first. I think that too often we in cryptozoology respond to the critics, the skeptics, the scoffers, the debunkers without realizing we have our own foundation to support. We really can't always react uh, in a defensive posture to such claims that we're a, you know, a pseudoscience or we're part of the paranormal. Well, I think we have to really 
keep going down this road that we're a subdiscipline of zoology, that we have a cryptozoological method, which very simply stated is to listen to the testimony of local and native and indigenous peoples, use that as a starting point, and then dis discover animals based upon finding physical evidence. Now, is misidentification part of what's going on? Of course. 80% of all Bigfoot reports are a woman in a fur coat, uh, back end of a moose, a bear. They're misidentifications. 1% are hoaxes. But the media, the debunkers, the skeptics try to tell us that we're dealing with 95% of hoaxes. It's just not true, which leaves us with 19% of all the cases we're looking at that are the unknowns, and we need to keep pursuing that. Now, what you're talking about with Bigfoot, with Yeti, with the Loch Ness Monster, those, are, those three are what I call the celebrity cryptids. Yeah. The celebrity cryptids, and in the 19th century, the other celebrity cryptid was the Great Sea Serpent. So those four, those four uh, groups of cryptids are the one that most people talk about, with the exception we ha now have, um, you know, as I was quoted in 1999 by ABC News, chupacabras are like Jennifer Lopez. They're both cross-cultural. <laughs> you know, we have, we have a real resurgence of interest in the chupacabras now and again, but mostly it's Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and Yeti. And, uh, I mean, what I'm really surprised about is how popular Yeti, the abominable snowman, is becoming. I think we're going to have some remarkable new expeditions and movies on that, but that's a whole another side thing. But anyway, what you're asking is, really, are there other cryptids around the world? And that's one of the main thrusts of this whole museum that I've got going is I, I bring people in here, I talk about the celebrity cryptids, but I say, at any one time, around the world, there's 200 other active pursuits of other cryptids that may turn out to be brand new species. For instance, in 2010, the largest new animal that was discovered was a giant monitor lizard from Luzon, Philippines, that scientists did not even start looking for until 2003. The local people knew about it, but nobody would pay attention to them. And how big is this monitor lizard turn out to be? Six and a half feet long, oh, wow. climbs trees, and eats fruits. It's only one of three lizards in the world to eat fruit that are uh, related to the monitors. And so you have a relative of the Komodo dragon living in the Philippines. Scientists did not you know, pay any attention to the indigenous people's reports of it, and it's discovered. In 2008, uh, Dr. Andrea Marshall discovered a brand new giant manta ray that's 26 feet across, and she said the reason we never knew that giant monitor ray was here was it's cosmopolitan, it migrates all over the world. It's different than the giant manta ray that's much smaller, that never migrates, that lives in coastal areas. But she said, we never listened to the natives about because it was hiding in plain sight. Hmm. How did she discover it? She got a three-year grant and went to 
dozens and dozens of fish markets all across Africa comparing the two uh, manta rays that were being sold in the fish markets and taking DNA sample until she could prove, and she got her PhD because she proved that a giant manta ray 26 feet across exists. Wow, that's amazing. See, that's that kind of ties into with the uh, with the logo of the International Cryptozoology Museum because unlike what people may think it would be, which is the Bigfoot, it's actually the coelacanth because uh, that's a creature that went from a cryptid to a confirmed animal, right? Right, right. The uh, native peoples called it a gambaza, and they ate it. Uh, they would occasionally catch these fish because they would come from the deep sea, uh, but it's so large, it's over five and a half, six and a half feet long that uh, they, of course, would keep the fish, eat it. It tasted terrible. It was oily, but um, it was big enough they would, you know, be able to feed several people for several days. 1938, whenever uh, it was actually caught by a Western museum, uh, it was East London Museum director. She found it on a fish dock and uh, wrote to one of the ichthyologists specialist in South Africa, found out that it had not been seen for 65 million years. Oh, wow. Since So when she discovered it in 38, that was a grand discovery. Then Dr. Smith, who uh, she'd written to, he was so became so obsessed he wanted to find the second one. He could not find the second one until 1952. It became such a media event in 1953, it actually stimulated and inspired the movie Creatures from the Black Lagoon. Hmm. So hmm. Wow. a lot of people don't know that the coelacanth is behind that movie. These are the kind of information you get, folks, from Lauren Coleman, not just on the show, but when you go to the museum, he'll tell you these stories that even I've never heard of. Amazing stuff. Now, you you bring up the celebrity cryptid uh, Loch Ness Monster. I feel like it's – I have mixed feelings. I love the Loch Ness Monster, but I also feel like it, it, it it's – it's not dying in a literal sense, but it's like losing steam. But then I see pictures that come up every now and again, but it just doesn't seem like it's as hot as it was in the 80s back, you know, when I was a kid. What's the status, I guess you could say, of Nessie at this point? Well, unfortunately, um, the the feeling that you're talking about, a couple, three years ago, there was a lot of articles that came out Robert Rines said he thought that maybe the Loch Ness monsters were dead, that they had become extinct. Uh, I tried to tell all of my psychologically aware research friends <laughs> that we had to be careful about what Robert Rines was talking about. He was dying. Uh, the man himself, who had been behind so many expeditions, was growing old. Uh, he couldn't go to Loch Ness anymore. He was getting depressed about uh, his contribution to the field, even though it has been great. And then he died. He died uh, a couple couple Novembers ago. And so Robert Rines, who had funded all of these expeditions that have produced some of the most famous underwater pictures from Loch Ness, uh, really uh, the the funding evaporated. His energy evaporated. Henry Bauer, another researcher, has grown old and doesn't go to Loch Ness anymore. So you're you're getting a kind of a changing of the guard. And when that happens in any kind of research, you oftentimes get 
a sense from some of the older people that are involved in it that, you know, that we can just kind of give up, that that the things aren't there anymore. And we have to be careful about that. There's a, a whole group of young researchers coming up that are interested in the Loch Ness Monster, that are still there, uh, still trying for the, the kind of underwater cams and the shore cams. Uh, we're getting films from there. Uh, Holmes came up with the film a couple of years ago. And we have to be careful. It's just that uh, uh, Robert Rines was a patent lawyer, had an enormous amount of money, uh, funded year after year of submarines, of side sonar cameras, of lots of equipment. We haven't had anybody step up with that kind of funding yeah. since he uh, passed away. So you're kind of hearing that uh, not that much from Loch Ness, but... There was an active summer of reports here and there from Loch Ness. Uh, some of them were mistakes, such as uh, some reflections from from some houses on the shore that looked like they were uh, white objects in the water. But there were some other ones that were looked like creatures in the water. The other thing that uh, when I was over there in 1999 and I really came to grips with the reality of it for me is that there's about 40 reports of the Loch Ness Monster on land, hmm. uh, variously described as a walrus, a giant slug, a camel. And most of the people, the individuals I interviewed who were eyewitnesses, they never talk about a neck. They never talk about a head. They talk about the Loch Ness Monster as an oversized, uh, overturned boat, uh, a giant whale, the back of a walrus. And whenever you think about it, Loch Ness is only six miles from the ocean down the River Ness. I think that what you have going on with Loch Ness is not that many good reports, and the infrequent reports that we do here seem to be seasonal. They seem to be um, cyclic, and you may have either blooms of fish or breeding going on or, um, you know, there are small family reports of of Loch Ness Monsters. It's not just one Nessie. Uh, but it, it is something that we have to consider that's going to be pretty hard to find. The other thing that a lot of people don't know is that there's actually enough water in Loch Ness to bury everyone on Earth under six feet of water. Oh, wow. Really? It's, it's that massive. It's that. The volume of water in Loch Ness is really inconceivable to human beings. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around it right now. Yeah, and that's so. So what's it? Just massively deep, I guess. Then, right? Oh, it's over a thousand feet deep in most places. Wow, twenty three feet, uh, twenty three miles long, uh, and quite broad in some places. And it has a, uh, it has, I probably am not. I'm going to do the Scottish, some injustice, but it, it has a thing across the water that's called the Har, and the Har. <laughs> is this rolling fog that really makes it quite hard to see what's going on in the water most of the time. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Now, what about some of these other lake monsters like the Ogopogo and the Champ? I mean, what are your thoughts on those in general? And is it sort of possible that we're dealing with a situation similar to what we were talking about here with the Bigfoot, where there's just different animals that we're, that we're probably contending with here? Well, I think that uh, is somewhat true. Um, I think that what goes on in Champ, in you know, with Champ and the Lake Champlain monsters, 
Well, you have a lake that's almost as big as Loch Ness, but it's only 200 and 300 feet deep. Uh, it also is frozen more. And so you do have misidentifications of sturgeon. But the Eric Olson film that uh, was taken two years ago is a remarkable piece of footage that shows something that looks like a, a giant otter. Um, myself and some other uh, cryptozoologists went over there, and we were able to measure uh, the exact spot that this creature was seen. And, and it looks to be, uh, you know, 12, 15 feet long. Certainly not a dog in the water, not a, a normal otter. So, uh, you know, you've got some possibility for cre creatures that are warm-blooded. Uh, I've always thought it was a mistake to try to pigeonhole all of these lake monsters as plesiosaurs or yeah. marine reptiles because over and over again, people say that they see a mane, they see whiskers, they see eyebrows. Um, uh, and the, the dead kicker for me is that if you actually look at the way that they say that these creatures are swimming, they're swimming up and down, up and down in the water, uh, not side to side. The side to side swimming because of the structure of the spine of a fish and a reptile uh, doesn't match the up and down that you get for these lake monsters, which exactly matches a mammal. Oh, yeah. Uh, the seals, the otters, the whales, they all go up and down in the water. And so I think we're dealing with large, warm-blooded, uh, long-necked seals of some kind that are, are really in the boreal forest lakes in what we call the monster latitudes in a band that goes right around the northern uh, tier of, uh, of North America, I mean, uh, northern United States and southern Canada, right around uh, Scotland, Ireland, and on over into Russia and Asia, mm. you have the same kind of reports in this band right around the world. Interesting, yeah, yeah. I never even connected that, the, the latitudinalness of it. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's another Ivan Sanderson. He he wrote in his one of his books and called these the monster latitudes, and it was, a, as he would say, it was a spot-on theory. <laughs> Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Montauk monster, because that's one of those things that sort of, it was such a weird picture that it, it'll almost never go away, because it's so, you know, visually bizarre, but I have a feeling that it's probably just some anomalous, uh, you know, effect of onto an animal that we already know about, but I'm sure you've, obviously, you've seen the picture, you've, you've seen all the conjecture, What what's your take on the whole Montauk monster thing? Well... Uh, this is one of those things that uh, uh, my name will live on forever in, <laughs> in Wikipedia because I'm the one that coined the, the name Montauk Monster. And so uh, I have in the museum the first American replica of the Montauk Monster. And myself and Darren Nash over in England, we came up with a positive identification based upon the skull structure and the feet and the uh, actual size because all we had to do was uh, I saw the 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 picture with the fly on it, as opposed to it being something like six feet long, which people exaggerated. That you had to scale down the picture to the size of the fly. Mm -hmm. It was a raccoon that had lost all of its hair in second stage decomposition. Ew. In second stage decomposition, you have a, a carcass like that being floating in and out of the shore, and the whole hair just sloughs right off. Yeah. 
And so that's why people say, said it looked like a griffin, it looked like a devil, it looked like, um, um, you know, a, a sea turtle. Also, what was the other one? Oh, that it, you know, looked like a pig or a hog. It was just a bloated raccoon. And the, the unfortunate thing is because it went viral in 2008, the next summer there was another Montauk Monster 2. There was two Montauk Monsters in England. There was a creature that washed uh, up in a creek in Panama that was a sloth. Uh, last year there was another one that washed up except had fur on its head up in Ottawa uh, on, near Ontario, in Ontario, and it turned out to be a mink. So you, you've now, the Montauk monster, the success of the media being able to distract people from wars and taxes and their miserable situation by talking about a creature that's nothing more than a dead animal on a beach, you now have it replicated over and over and over again that this has become a, a media darling. Yeah. So... Very interesting. See, I'm glad. I like to think of this program as sort of like the uh, the paranormal program of the record or on the record. So it's good right. to have this for future. And there are there there are a lot of uh, unknowns, and I, it is unfortunate. We're in a period where I the most phone calls I get from you know print media and online media are will I identify this chupacabra? Will I identify this dead body? Right, right, right. Uh, and they're all. Not hoaxes, they're just misidentifications, whereas I'd much rather be talking about the realistic reports of Bigfoot and Yeti and, uh, you know, the Black Panther reports or even, you know, the, the story of the, the mountain lion that got killed in Connecticut and the government tried to explain it away as a creature from uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota. <laughs> really? Really? Why would oh, yeah. they do that? Just because they don't want to admit that there may be alien big cats running around? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, about four months ago, the U.S. government came out with the final edict saying that there are absolutely no eastern panthers east of the Mississippi except for one population in Florida. And then what happens on June 11th? A, uh, there's been, there were many sightings of a mountain lion in Connecticut. It gets struck on the road in Connecticut and killed. And all of the newspapers, the media arrive, and it's a body of a big, not of a Bigfoot, of a, a cat. And then it takes about a week for them to do testing. And they quickly have a news conference and said, this is a cat uh, that has DNA in it from South Dakota. And, uh, you know, it's not a pet. It's It's got wild wild animals in its uh, stomach. So it's definitely a wild animal. So we think it walked for three years across the United States to Connecticut. Now, there's been hundreds of reports in that time from all over the East. Now, what's happened since then is uh, from my back channel sources, I found out that the actual findings are that there's the DNA sample shows that 66% of the DNA matches up with the mountain lions in, in South Dakota. And you've probably got a situation in all of the East where you'll be able to match up DNA with two-thirds of some other cat in some other part of the eastern United States. It's just turning out that they they tried too hard to explain away this cat and that we do think that there are eastern mountain lion in the United States in the East, and they all aren't explained, explained as 
circus trains, crashes, as escaped pets, as drug dealer pets, and other things that we keep hearing about. <laughs> there, are, There's a wild population of mountain lions in the east. And you, you, you touched on another one of my pet peeves, actually, earlier, and that's just this, this weird sort of like chupacabra frenzy that's gone on in the last few years where it's just clearly like some kind of sick dog. And it's like it's not a chupacabra, but it's like always these local news reports I see on YouTube that are like chupacabra found in Tallahassee or something like that. And it's like, no, that's a dog that's sick or something, you know, but it's not it's not what we, we've been told is the chupacabra, it seems. No, the reports, uh, there was a new one this this uh, this summer of a, a hospital worker in Maryland taking pictures. He caught it in a trap in Maryland and then released it, said it was a chupacabra. They come out of Maryland, Texas, the Carolinas, Oklahoma. A hundred percent of those four-legged chupacabra turn out to be canids, dogs, coyotes, foxes, koi dogs with mange. Mm -hmm. And mange causes all of the hair to come off of these animals, and they look weird. You know, an animal without hair, uh, its its nose looks very pointed. It looks like it has a rat tail. So people use the word chupacabra all the time incorrectly. The classic chupacabras in Puerto Rico and South America are always bipedal. They stand on two legs, and they're actually covered in short gray hair. They're not hairless. They're not four-legged. They don't, um, you know, they they don't look like these morphed Texan chupacabras. It's just a sad mistake that's that's been made. And actually, um, myself and some other researchers tracked down the first time the chupacabras was actually used on TV. It wasn't in 1995, like uh, the Puerto Rican reports exploded in 1995. The first chupacabra on TV was mentioned on, in 1960 hmm. on Bonanza, and actually a Mexican farmhand is telling the Cartwrights about a chupacabras that actually sucks milk from goats, not blood. Strange. Yeah. Strange. That makes you wonder just this if this is just some weird like thing that's permutated over the years. That you know, it's it just sounds like a lot well, of there's, confusion. There's a, there's a translation for the um, there's a certain kind of bird, the whippoorwills, that sometimes are called chupacabras. And there is some folklore among Hispanic folks of them sucking milk from goats, too. Hmm. So we've got to dive a little bit deeper into this whole business, the connection between the whippoorwills, the chupacabras, the mangy dogs, and the upright creatures that almost seem like they're part alien. But I think a lot of that has to do with the first researchers in 1995 who were interviewing the eyewitnesses were not cryptozoologists, they were ufologists because there were no cryptozoologists available. Hmm. So all of the first people that went in and interviewed all the chupacabra eyewitnesses were putting it in context that it had to be some kind of alien. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that makes, that adds a whole other realm of, a whole other dimension of of, uh, misidentification confusion to the whole mystery of that. Now we've talked about the land animals here. We've talked about the sea animals. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention sort of the air creatures of cryptozoology, of course, being the big one, the uh, the Thunderbirds. I know your friends at Mark Hall 
and uh, you know you know Ken Gerhard very well. What are your thoughts sort of uh, on where we stand on the Thunderbirds? Well, it, it's kind of uh, been pretty quiet. I mean, there have been reports from Southwest Pennsylvania of uh, Thunderbirds. There's been some reports from Southeast um, Alaska. But in general, in the last 10 years or so, it's been pretty quiet. A lot of people, of course, uh, love to talk about the 1948 and 1977 Illinois cases, and Mark Hall certainly did a lot of investigations of that, as uh, as I did and my brother Jerry. So, um, but uh, there hasn't been really anything new. There's not been any large feathers dropping from the sky uh, and things like that. There has been some fossil evidence that keeps coming up of these teratorns, the giant condor-like birds, being found in association with human bones in like La Brea tar pits and things like that, which are kind of exciting in, in a, sort of a backdoor kind of way. I wonder if we'll, we're going to learn more about the Thunderbirds by having some new fossil discoveries that will really kind of shake up uh, science in general. Yeah, that would be that would be great. I mean, the more evidence we can get for these things, the better. Now, is there any – you talked about sort of like the celebrity cryptids, and, and we've talked about, you know, the Thunderbirds and Ogopogo and Champ and some of the ones that are on the – I guess you could say this next tier. But is there any sort of like a crypto creature – that, you know, you find particularly fascinating that you don't think gets its due, you know. Maybe, I, I, I presume it's not the Mongolian death worm, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking along those lines, something. Well, I, I, I you know, just to mention the cats one more time, I, I'm really interested in how Black Panther reports 40% of the mystery cats around the world, mm -hmm. whether they're the ABCs, the alien uh, big cats in, in the U.K. or the the Black Panthers of the Blue Mountains of Australia or the Black Panthers of uh, of California, the Black Panthers of Vermont or Massachusetts, they're, uh, they're seen so frequently and, you know, they, they definitely are killing wildlife, killing livestock, leaving footprints, yet they're not caught. There is no Black Panther that exists zoologically in North America, but there's not a weekend that goes by when somebody doesn't come through the museum who's been an eyewitness but never told anybody about it. And so they are more frequently seen than Bigfoot. Uh, but it's this, this tier of cryptids that everybody just takes for granted that, oh, well, of course there's Black Panthers. Why should I even talk to anybody about it? Um, and in a similar uh, kind of opposite but interesting parallel universe, there's the, the Tasmanian tiger, which of course is not a tiger but a marsupial. Uh, and those are still being actively reported in Western Australia and in New Guinea. And I think of all of the animals that may be an exciting discovery over in that part of the world, uh, we're certainly finding over and over again New Guinea gives us a new animal, new species surprises. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Tasmanian tiger isn't discovered in New Guinea and really throws everybody for a loop since they think it's going to be found in Australia. Interesting. So there's, uh, but the one that, uh, a kind of a hidden creature in Europe that I think needs to be, more research needs to be done about it is the, the Tazoverm. The hmm. Tazoverm are these four foot long, almost like a giant beaded lizard that are often reported in the Alps. 
and I'd, uh, I'm actually, um, I've told several of my artist friends that have said they wanted to donate something to the museum. I think one of the easiest models that I don't have is a four foot long tassel worm, and I'd certainly like one of those for the museum. So uh, I think that may happen just by me wishing for it so often. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've never even heard of that, so that's even stranger, yeah. Well, the cool yeah. thing, too, about cryptozoology, what you point out here with the alien big cats or, or the black panthers is that, you know, it's not just mystery animals that we can't quite identify or prove the existence of yet. It's also the idea of animals in the wrong place or animals existing in a place where they're not supposed to or not, people say they don't exist. Right, right. Well, there's two main categories of cryptids. There's the cryptids that we will find are completely new animals, uh, new species that surprise us all, you know, a, a new a new large monkey in Asia or a, a bird that they discover here or there. Or, I mean, it, it, people say there's no new animals being found in North America, but it's been a quite exciting two, 12 months where a giant crayfish was discovered in Tennessee that's twice as big as the crayfish that everybody knew about, and a, a brand-new turtle was discovered in Mississippi never seen before. So new animals are even being found in North America. And then the whole other category of cryptids are animals that we feel are recently extinct and are being misidentified as some unknown kind of creature. And there we have the ivory-billed woodpecker, the Tasmanian tiger, and some of these creatures that are recently extinct that still may be around. And it could even be something like the terratorn which died out in the Pleistocene is really the Thunderbirds, and they're still around. And we just uh, haven't haven't caught one yet. Okay, okay, interesting. That's so. That's a good sort of end point here for this conversation. And and you know, talk a little bit about once again the the big move for the International Cryptozoology Museum. People can find out more about that, of course, at cryptozoologymuseum.com. But you know, what's going on on October 30th and and beyond? Well, on October 30th, we're going to have a grand monster. Reopening at 11 Avon Street, Portland, Maine. That's our new address. On the day before Halloween, the museum is going to be open from noon to 6 o'clock with a special one-time admission of $2. Uh, unfortunately, because our rent is going up, the, the $5 admission is going to go up to $7. So this is everybody's one-time chance to come on the, on the 30th and get in for $2. And uh, we will be giving away Halloween candy for free. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then we're going to be open regular hours. Uh, we're closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Although we are considering we're going to have a board meeting on the 30th, we're going to consider opening on Monday holidays because so many schools around here are closed yeah. that it seems natural that a lot of people might come out on Monday holidays to come to the museum. Nice, nice. Yeah, that would make sense, too, because... Uh... It's a lot of people, three-day weekends, they go out and travel a lot and stuff exactly. like that. Yeah. And, and beyond the big move for the museum, what's next for you? You said you've already written about 35 books. I'm sure you've got <laughs> several more in you. So, you know, what what's on tap? I have a feeling you've well, got some I'm, of the I'm, works. I'm finishing up Monsters of Massachusetts. Uh, that's my next book that will be out next year. Then I'm going to do Monsters of New York, um, looking to uh, do a book about all of the strange museums across the United States, a general cryptozoology book, uh, a book called Bigfoot in Maine, 
actually, I think I have about six book contracts that in the pipeline. So I've got more than enough to work to keep me busy for a few years. And then, of course, my biggest hope is uh, of all of my books, I have one book that has a movie option on it, and that's the Tom Slick book. And if that comes through, and there is a good possibility there will be a, a Yeti movie made in the next three years, and if that comes through, then the, the funding for the museum is going to be quite secure because I'll be donating a lot of the the proceeds from that movie to the museum. Excellent, excellent. Well, it sounds like the sky's the limit here. It's been such an amazing ride uh, for the ICM, and, you know, it's just so gratifying, really, because I know you've struggled for years in this field, and, and to see it, this acceptance and this, this embracing by the media is just so gratifying, you know, to see from afar, and I'm sure it's been amazing for you. Oh, yeah. It's it's so good to know that people are really seeing it's a, a a scientific, entertainment, educational, fun place to visit that people are, are coming to see it. And uh, any speaking engagements or TV appearances we should plug here, or, or is that sort of still in the pipeline? Oh, um, I've already, <laughs> I mean, I've got a, a talk locally in Portland next week, and uh, November 2012 in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. So I've got a few things that I'll be uh, posting online for people to find nice. where I'll be talking. Nice. And chances are you can see Lauren just about any time you turn on one of these cryptozoology programs because he's all over the place on Monster Quest and a bunch of other shows. So Right. And even some of my hair is still uh, brown in some of those. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, we'll all be watching uh, and hoping that the cryptids, the Cardinals, will win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, i, I got to thank you once again, Lauren, for coming sure. on the show. I know you're extremely busy, and it's very difficult to pin you down to do a program, but to have you sit down with us here for 90 minutes has been just amazing and really been great to sort of catch up and get a look at where we stand in the world of cryptozoology from the man really uh, – who is just the, the the pillar of the field. So it's been fantastic for me, and, and, you know, it's just humbling for me to be able to call you such a good friend. So yeah. it's been great. Well, it's, it's really great talking to you again, Tim, and I, I look forward to your next visit to the museum up here in Maine. Absolutely. I'm going to try and come up as soon as I can. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks, of course, to Lauren Coleman for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Check out his website, www.cryptomundo.com, C-R-Y-P-T-O-M-U-N-D-O.com. And if you are within reach, you definitely want to go and visit the International Cryptozoology Museum. It is a fantastic place. You can find out more about that at www.cryptozoologymuseum.com. If you haven't yet, definitely make the trip to the ICM you will not be disappointed. Before we get into listener feedback, let's take a moment here and talk a little bit about the scheduling as we move forward in Season 6. You just heard Episode 626, and the plan here at HQ is to wrap up Season 6 with Episode 630, so next week's edition will kick off the final four of Season 6. And even though the shows have been sporadic at best, I'm trying to get them to you faster. The weather now is kicking my ass, so it's been one thing after another for me. Nonetheless, my big goal is to wrap up Season 6 by the end of November, because right around the corner are the holidays, and then we got to get down to business 
with the annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, and we definitely want that to be a part of Season 7, and I'm just terrified of a BOA Audio season going over one year, and that's almost certainly going to happen, but we definitely want to get the show wrapped up by the end of November. So keep an eye out for the final four of Season 6, starting next week with Cullen O'Reilly talking about Deadly Equines. Now let's move on to BOA Audio listener feedback. We got three emails in the till getting progressively smaller. We start out with the first one, which is the largest. It comes from Laura F., and she is an international listener. Here's what she has to say. Just wanted to write and let you know that you are indeed still gaining new listeners. I've been listening to C2C and Red Ice for years, but have branched out a little more lately. Some random Google search, don't even remember what it was, led me to your site. Your interviews are such a treat, and maybe more than you realize. I've been in South Korea for almost two years, and my internet connection is of extreme importance. It's how I interact with the English world these days. Going through your archives has brought me great joy and comfort the last few weeks, as well as lots of intrigue. I enjoyed two shows in particular. One was about the Fraser Lands in Kentucky. I'm a native. Hadn't heard that story before. I also listened to the guy in Season 4 who researched Columbine. Wow. Even if I can't quite wrap my head around his conclusions, I don't want to go there. I thought his research was excellent and incredibly interesting. I had no clue other than the mainstream media info about the case. If he makes any headway into the Virginia Tech thing, I hope he can be on your show again. Anyway, I sent you a Facebook request, but get that you might not use it for fans. I was really glad to hear you read letters at the end of your show, so I found your email address instead. Just wanted to tell you thanks so much for all your work, and extra thanks for making your archives available. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Laura in South Korea. Wow. Thank you for writing in, Laura. Lots to respond to here. First of all, the random Google searches, that's the result of the massive BOA recaps on these episodes. People often wonder why we have such lengthy text recaps on each episode. That's because that's how new folks find the program, via random Google searches, which turn up BOA audio. Next, I just want to take a moment and you know, express some awe that you are listening all the way in South Korea, just another country we can put the push pin in for BOA audio. Just amazing that someone out there in South Korea right now is listening to me speak and listening to me read their emails. So this really is a global grassroots program, my friends. Thank you, Laura, for reaching out and letting us know that you are representing BOA over there in South Korea. With response to the two shows that you mentioned that you liked so much, the Fraser Lands in Kentucky, very happy to hear you write to me about that one. That's one of those episodes that kind of slipped under the radar for a lot of people. I didn't hear too much feedback on that show. So to hear it called back two years later is really gratifying. So thank you for mentioning that episode, Laura. And I couldn't help but chuckle here with regards to uh, our old buddy, William Zabel, once again, really captivating the BOA Audio listeners, even the newcomers who stumble upon that Columbine episode. Couldn't help but laugh uh, when I saw that Laura picked out the William Zabel episode. Laura, I don't know if you've heard or not, but William Zabel is missing in action. We've been trying to get a hold of him pretty much since that episode aired, and he has vanished. So 
the William Zabel mystery continues here on VOA Audio. And finally, the Facebook request. I'd be happy to approve your request, Laura. I'm just really lazy and I procrastinate and I let those Facebook requests pile up and then one day just sort of approve like 50 people at once. So sit tight. Once I finish posting this installment of BOA Audio, I will definitely go in and approve your Facebook friend request and be happy to have you as part of our circle of friends. Let me turn it around on you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of the program and for your really enthusiastic email. It is much appreciated. Next email comes from Melissa. No hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. I am a wee bit late to the Lost Party, and it looks like I can't download the Lost Cast anymore. Everyone is done with Lost and doesn't want to talk about it, and I remember that you had a series of discussions, but when I click the MP3, it goes to a web hosting site. Does that mean it is gone forever? Thanks for all you do, and if I missed it, well, too bad for me, I guess. Melissa, new Lost fanatic. Ugh. I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, Melissa, but the Lost Cast has gone offline, and it is really so far down on the BOA priority list to get it back online that it is highly unlikely that it will really see the light of day, I don't know, until maybe when there's some kind of Lost reunion or a Lost movie, then we'll revive the Lost Cast and uh, put the archive back up. But when we had the great audio switch of the spring of 2011 here at BOA Audio, the Lost Cast fell offline, and as I said, we just haven't had a chance to take the time to put it back online. I don't know, maybe one of the Lost Cast listeners can reach out and send these MP3s to Melissa, because (laughs) I feel bad, but uh, we'll, we'll come up with something, Melissa. I'll get back in touch with you. We'll figure out a way for you to get the Lost Cast, but as I said, it's very unlikely that I'll have the chance to put it back online. Next email comes from Ray. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Moon hoax. Excellent show. I must have listened to that one 20 times. Keep up the good work, Ray. That's it. That's all he has to say. Just wanted to read that one in a way, I guess, because, you know, sometimes we put out some pretty wacky episodes. Sometimes we put out shows that are really, I guess you could say, covering topics that are shunned by the world of paranormal media or the general realm of esoterica and maybe looked at as a little woo-woo. But I'm more than happy to look at some of the more stranger theories and research that's out there in the world of the paranormal because I find those concepts really interesting and really the people behind those concepts to be equally interesting. So to hear Ray say that he enjoyed the Moon Hoax episode so much that he listened to it 20 times is uh, pretty cool, and I'm glad you enjoyed it that much, Ray. And that closes the book on listener feedback. Thanks to Laura, Melissa, and Ray for writing in. Let me give you the means to contact me if you want to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or you can go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And the final method, of course, is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's paranormal playground, the United States of Esoterica. Lots of cool discussion going on there. 
with regards to BOA audio, the paranormal, and the world of pop culture as well. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that I am a part of Facebook and Twitter, so if you are also on those sites, feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Now let's take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff for their help and support at the website and the program. They are, of course, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carollin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. I got bunches of stuff from the BOA staff that is waiting to get posted. Just put up a new column from Regan Lee at the website yesterday, so head on over and check that out and make it a part of your daily search for esoteric news and opinion. We're working on a whole bunch of cool stuff here as the holiday season begins. Now comes the part of the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to help us out by making a donation to the website and the audio series. How do you do that? There's two ways to do so. You can go to BOA and make a donation via PayPal. There's a button on the left-hand side of the screen. But what if you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail? We have a way that you can do that as well. Send your donations to Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. Let me spell Pinehurst for you. That's P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So the complete snail mail address is Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And we have two caveats if you send us a donation. First, please make it out to Tim Benall and not Benall of America, because my bank will not cash that donation. And please include your email address so I can shoot you a line and say thanks for your donation. And as always, the standard disclaimer applies. All donations go towards Benall of America and VOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, I teased it at the end of the last episode, so I'm not sure if I can even do it justice this time around, but of course our guest is going to be Cullen O'Reilly, author of the book Deadly Equines, The True Story of Meat-Eating and Murderous Horses. Certainly a crypto topic if there ever was one, Colin has uncovered some amazing information about meat-eating horses. I mean, there's no real way to couch the term. Horses that eat meat and the habitual meat-eating of horses spanning thousands of years. I've talked to a lot of people since I did this interview, sort of floated the idea of horses eating meat, and so many people are flabbergasted when I tell them about this concept. But the more you hear about it and the more you learn from Cullen O'Reilly, the more believable and realistic it becomes. This is a two-hour-plus conversation that covers the meat-eating horses, the murderous horses, and a whole bunch of other really interesting sociological horse-related topics. So definitely one folks are going to want to check out. I personally think it is a classic edition of BOA Audio and the perfect episode to kick off the final four of Season 6. Cullen O'Reilly talking about deadly equines, 
next week on BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Lauren Coleman for coming on the show. Check out his websites and definitely check out the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Thanks to Laura, Melissa, and Ray for writing in on this week's installment of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And, of course, big, big thanks to all you folks out there, the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys just continue to humble me with your support of this program. You folks are just awesome. So thank you for your support of the program, and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.